Well, friends, it's on the cold, rainy mornings that we find out who is truly committed to Sunday school. Um, and this is the first one of the year. So, uh, so you made it. Congrats. Uh, you passed the test. Uh, um, let's, uh, let's open in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that you would be with us by your spirit um, now and uh, particularly um, as we worship an hour from now, that you would draw near to us. And by your Holy Spirit, you'd be present with us, that you would enliven our worship, that you accepted and uh, through um, the ministry of Jesus um, as he ministers to us and leads us in worship this morning. We pray for that gift, Father, for that mercy and grace. We don't want to take it for granted. And we do thank you for this day, this day of rest, this day of worship, um, this day that is set apart um, as holy. We're grateful for that gift. And we do pray, Father, um, um, on this cold and rainy morning that you would draw our church, that you would bring our people this morning um, to be with us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, friends, we are, um, Paul Buckley intended to teach this morning um, his last psalm workshop, but um, he is unwell, and so I am um, reconfiguring the schedule a little bit. Um, the intention was for Paul to teach today on the psalms and then for next week for us to begin a new section of Sunday School on the Westminster Confession of Faith. I do want to say it's wonderful that everyone is sitting in the center section. That's a, that, makes, that makes my job easier. That's great. I love it. Um, uh, so next week we're going to begin a new series on the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, um, picking up where we left off last spring as we're just sort of teaching through it um, sequentially. And um, if you need a copy of the confession, I've got those, and I would love to give you one um, for your very own. You can take home and read and, and use and study. Um, and so basically what we're going to do, um, I'm going to teach today um, the, what I was going to teach next week, and Paul next week hopefully will teach what he was going to teach today. And then we'll carry on after that with the confession in that manner. Um, so today we're going to jump back into the confession of faith where we left off last spring, um, the end of March. We left off at the end of um, chapter, um, uh, well, this handout I see is the wrong title on the chapter, but the chapter we just covered is the one that's there of God's eternal decree. This chapter, chapter four, is um, the chapter on creation of creations. So we're going to pick up with creation this morning. Um, just to orient you uh, to the Westminster Confession of Faith, again, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a document that was published in 1647. Um, it was um, uh, the product of about a 10-year process um, in England, in Westminster Abbey, um, or the Westminster Assembly, where the Westminster Assembly were a group of pastors that came together um, over about a decade to write a new confession um, for the English church. Um, and uh, they did that at the, the, the call of Parliament. It was a quite a contentious political thing at the time. If you know your history of England um, during that period, um, there's a lot of um, unrest and, and different things. Um, but it came out of that period, and the Westminster Confession of Faith um, is relevant to us today for many reasons. One is that it's just a remarkable document of the church and a really um, succinct and helpful, I think, summary of Reformed theology, but also particularly within our denomination that our church is a part of. Um, it serves, along with the Westminster Larger Catechism and um, Shorter Catechism, which were also produced by that same assembly at that same time, it serves as a summary of what our church believes, that the scriptures teach. It, it summarizes our theology, um, the things that we believe um, as a church. And if you're going to be an officer in the PCA, in our denomination or our church, 
uh, that as a pastor or elder or deacon, um, you have to um, subscribe, you have to affirm, you have to, uh, as the vow says, receive and adopt the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechisms as a faithful summary of what the scripture teaches. Um, now within our polity, there is particularly for pastors, a way um, for pastors to declare differences with the standards. So you're not required to, to affirm every jot and tittle, so to speak, of the standards. Um, but your affirmation, whatever your differences are, must be declared to your presbytery, and then your presbytery determines um, whether or not those differences uh, rise to the level of being placing you out of accord with being able to subscribe to the whole document. Um, so that's, that's the typical way that it works. And some men have differences, some men don't, um, but our, our denomination does, does give the flexibility um, so you don't have to agree with everything. But if there are important things you disagree with, then you can't be a pastor, basically, in our denomination. Any questions about any of that before I jump into new material this morning? Very good. All right, let's um, look at creation. So on your handout there, you have the paragraph that I want to look at this morning. Um, it is short, but it is dense, and I think there's going to be plenty for us to talk about. Um, so remember, this chapter follows the, uh, the chapter on God's eternal decree, um, where we, uh, the, we found that the, the Westminster Confession teaches that um, God has an eternal decree um, from eternity that he works out according to his own good pleasure and will um, throughout all of, of history. Um, the Lord is, is working that decree. Um, and now the, the catechism is, or the confession is going to move um, sequentially through um, several different movements of that decree. It's going to talk about creation in this chapter and providence in the next chapter. And then in the chapter after that, it's going to talk about the fall and sin and the misery of mankind and the fall. And then it's going to begin to talk about our Lord Jesus Christ and the redemption that God works through him. So it's, it's sort of moving through time, so to speak, and, and tracing how that e one eternal decree of God works itself out through uh, the various epochs of history. And so it begins with creation, and it says this, It pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness, in the beginning, to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. Just to um, orient you to what's there on your page, um, after um, the word Holy Ghost, there's a parenthesis with an A in it. You can look down the next section there and see scripture references that are listed. Um, those references are not my additions. They're original to the document itself. Um, Parliament asked the assembly to add scripture text, scripture proofs um, to its uh, confession after it was initially published. And so they went back and did that. Um, so if you um, would like to take the time, you can look up um, those scripture references for, um, for the different points, different um, clauses there within the document and kind of wrestle with um, how the, the writers of the confession are linking what they're arguing theologically from the scriptures themselves. And that follows all the way through the document. Um, just in terms of thinking about this statement about creation, I think this is a really lovely, um, concise, obviously, um, but, but jam-packed statement of theology regarding what we believe 
um, about creation, about God's work in creation. Um, the first thing I want to highlight here is this statement, it pleased. That's how it begins. It pleased God. Um, it pleased him. Um, this, the divines here, and, and I use the word divines to refer to the writers of the Westminster Confession because that's the historically uh, normative term. It doesn't mean anything about their being divine in, the, in a way that we might associate um, today. Uh, rather, it's a kind of archaic way of referring to pastors. Pastors were called divines in the um, 17th century, and so that's why um, that phrase is used. So the divines underscore here the truth that God did not need to create anything. There was no lack um, in God when he created um, all things. Um, there was no um, gap. There was no unhappiness. There was, no, um, uh, there was nothing missing um, from the life of God. Rather, he did it solely of his pleasure because he wanted to, because he desired it, because it pleased him. Um, that is why he created uh, the world and all things. He was totally sufficient, totally happy in and of himself. Um, why is that important? Why is it important for us to say that God made the world merely out of his pleasure rather than some other motive? Yes, ma'am. He, he doesn't need us, right. And if he needed us, what, what would that mean? What would be the implication of that? What would his relationship be to his creation? Dependent, that's the word, yeah. He would be dependent upon us, dependent upon our response to him, dependent upon how we loved him or didn't love him, um, uh, communed with him or didn't commune with him. And that creates all sorts of problems, I think, as you begin to think about um, the nature and character of God. Um, it is, is uh, necessary, I would say, for God merely to make, if God is who he says he is in the scriptures, for him to have merely made the world from his good pleasure uh, not from any lack, not from any dependence, not from any uh, thing that he was missing. Um, uh, Robert Lethem, who's a wonderful <clears throat> contemporary theologian that I would highly recommend to you, um, wrote, writes in his book, um, Systematic Theology, um, that was published recently. He says, God is not merely the giver of life, but also life itself, overflowing, superabundant life. In generating the sun, or in begetting the sun, um, to use the more um, uh, creedal language, and spirating the spirit, uh, breathing out the spirit, the Father is the fountain of life that forever is brimming over in God by necessity of his nature. In creation, God freely determined to bring into existence entities other than himself with which to share life on a creaturely level. Um, and I love the way that Lethem puts that there. I think it's helpful. Um, it, it seems as though there was something inherent in the nature of God and who he is in terms of his triune life, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, but in himself that, that led to creation being an outpouring of his, of his very character, his very nature. Um, God pleased God um, to make uh, the world, but in some ways it was also an act that was completely coherent and even inherent in his being and who he was. Um, the God of the scriptures is one who, in a sense, um, would always have made uh, the world um, because there was no other way for him to, to act than to make a creation for him um, to give life to and to sustain uh, by his love and with his triune life. Um, Jonathan Edwards <clears throat> um, says this, uh, which is a similar kind of sentiment, the creation of the world um, 
seems to have been especially for this end. I, I think the question I'm trying to answer here is, if it pleased God, then why did it please God? What is it about God's nature, um, Father, Son, and Spirit, um, that would have led to him being pleasured by uh, the creation of the world? And Edwards, um, who uh, was a, you know, probably the most important American theologian ever lived, um, he writes, the creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end, this goal, that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature and to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, love and grace that was in his heart and that in this way God might be glorified. So Edwards is using that same picture of God being a kind of fountain of love and goodness and life and the reason for which God made the world, Edwards argues, uh, there are handouts there in the sound booth if anybody who's coming in now needs them. Um, um, he he it expresses those things in creation. Creation is the natural, the, 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 the outcome that we might expect for a God like the God we read about in the scriptures. Um, so he was free to make the world or not make the world, but at the same time within his nature, within his character, it was absolutely fitting for him to create. Any thoughts or questions about that? Yeah, Jason. That's right. Yeah, the, the, the chief end of man, as the Shorter Catechism says, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, um, to participate in a life with him, an eternal life that we get drawn into through the Trinity himself. And that is the reason why Jesus took on flesh and was made man and died and rose again, um, that he might bring um, the, the humanity into God's own triune life. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God, as Paul says in Colossians. Um, so it's through Christ and through the union that the Spirit works um, um, in us um, with him that we are then brought into that triune life. And certainly we participate in that triune life now by faith, um, um, and, but we will on the last day in the resurrection um, can participate in, in a way that is beyond our imagination right now in many ways. But that's right, that's, that is the end for which God made the world that he might share his life with his creation. Um, not in a way that, that creates some sort of confusion between creator and creature, but in a way that is um, appropriate to his love and his uh, pursuit of us and his grace and his goodness. Yeah. Eric, did you have a comment?
The man is alone. Yeah, I wouldn't. That statement in Genesis 2, I would not necessarily apply that to the eternal Son of God in the same way that we would apply it to Adam. Um, so I think we'd want to make that distinction. Um, but yeah, I think we are holding some things in tension here in the sense that we are saying that God is totally happy in and of himself from eternity, um, did not in some fundamental way need to create and yet I think we also want to say it was absolutely within God's character and God's nature to create. Um, in, in some ways, it's unimaginable that he would not create because of um, his triune life. It, 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 um, it led fittingly, appropriately, um, in a, the most perfect way possible to the creation of the world, that overflow of life within himself. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's certainly true that we're holding those, those dynamics in tension. All right, let me continue to move through here. The, or the confession states, it pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And I love that they um, don't um, exclude naming the persons of the Trinity here. They don't just say it pleased God for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, etc. They say it pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And what they're highlighting there is that creation is the work of the triune God. Creation, as I think we're talking about now, um, already is the um, natural overflow of um, God being a triune uh, being, um, three persons and one being united forever. Um, that, that in his triune nature, um, the, the creation overflowed. And also um, that in creation, all three persons are active. And that's really what the um, scripture texts there in, in A are pointing towards. Uh, Genesis 1, 2, of course, um, uh, speaks of um, the spirit hovering over the waters. Um, John 1 and 2 talks about, John 1, 2 and 3 talks about how um, all things were made um, by means of the word, the logos, the son of God. Um, Hebrews 1, 2 talks about how the son is the one who by whom the wor God created the world, um, etc. And there are other places we could talk about too, Colossians 1, etc. Um, uh, let's see, um, Bavink, Herman Bavink, who was a 19th, late 19th, early 20th um, uh, theologian in the Netherlands, um, Reformed Dogmatics, it's a four-volume set, it's remarkable, it's probably the resource that I use most frequently in terms of um, uh, just Reformed theology. Um, he says, in the one divine being, there are three persons, each of whom performs a task of his own in that one work of creation. All things originate simultaneously from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit. The Father is the first cause, right? He is the one who begets the Son, who with the Son um, um, breathes out the Spirit. The Father is the first cause. The initiative for creation proceeds from Him. Accordingly, in an administrative sense, creation is specifically attributed to Him. This is why in the creeds, um, we begin by saying, I believe um, in God. Uh, the maker of heaven and earth. And then we begin later say um, that Jesus is the one by whom all things were made, right? Um, so there's that distinction in the Nicene Creed, for example. Um, 
the son is not an instrument. So the son isn't just like a tool the father uses, but the personal wisdom, the logos. Uh, the personal wisdom there is referring to Proverbs 8, logos, of course, John 1, by whom everything is created. Everything rests and coheres in him, Colossians 1, in him all things hold together and is created for him, Colossians 1, 16, as the head and master of all creatures. Um, so, so the Son um, is the one by whom all things were made. And of course, the Son is also the one who in time will take on created flesh um, in order to be made man and to be uh, unite himself with um, his creation in a sense. And the Holy Spirit is the personal imminent cause. Um, imminent there means um, it, something that is inherent, something that is, um, that is holding things together. Um, by which all things live and move and have their being, right? Quoting Paul in Acts 17, receive their own form and configuration are led to their destination in God. So the spirit is what brings all of these things um, together. I love that quote. I think it's really helpful to kind of give a picture of um, the way that the triune God is involved in creation in a really specific um, orthodox way. Any thoughts or questions about that? Yeah, Jeremy. Yeah, the work of, um, in terms of explicit um, nature, we, we get a lot about the work of the Trinity in creation. And of course, some of it is, is um, hinted at um, there in Genesis 1, where God says to himself, as it were, let us make man in our own image, um, not let me make man in my own image, um, which is a, you know, and then it, it's unpacked there throughout the rest of the scriptures. What what God means by that, let us make man. Yes, Jason. Yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> by the implication of being saved and united to Christ is, a, is to participate in that same economic role. Just similarly, if you could say that when uh, God made Eve, she's part of that same 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't affirm that, that we participate in the same economic role as the Son and the triune nature of God. I would say we are made partakers of the divine nature through our union with Christ because Peter uses that language in Second Peter 1. Um, so we're certainly brought into the life of the Trinity, but I don't, I don't think I would affirm what you're saying. It is complex, absolutely. But I think we do want to differentiate between the unique work of the Son and His, um, in His redemptive work. Um, we're always differentiated from that. Now we are, of course, called to imitate His uh, life and death, and we're called to partake in His sufferings, um, as Paul talks about in, in Philippians um, uh, chapter 3. And so there are aspects of course of our unity with Christ that leads to us um, following in his way the way you know he says take up your cross and follow me um, but we want to I think we do want to have a distinction between his I don't think we want to say that we share in his economic role in the Trinity um, but we're going a little afield here I think um, yes Uh, yeah, dying for people's sins would be a thing. <laughs> Atonement, I think. I mean, to name one, um, I think there are other things. But I, again, I think we're going, I want to stick to creation here. We're getting into the work of incarnation and union with, which I appreciate. I love that. But I, I think we're getting a little, little off the page here. Let me, let me bring us back. I'm happy to talk about these things um, offline. All right, so... Um, the divines go on to say that it pleased God, Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, um, for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. Um, so here they're giving a kind of logic or purpose of creation um, for um, the triune God. Here the divines teach that God's goal in creation is the manifestation of his glory. And, and we want to be careful about this. I love the Edwards quote I gave you a minute ago that the end for which God made the world is that the son might have a spouse. Yes, that is true, that he might pour out his love upon her, that he might save her, that he might bring her into his own life. Uh, but why does um, Edwards state at the end, why does he do this? That in this way, God might be glorified. Right, so we need to make sure that we keep things straight in terms of the ultimate motive for God um, in his creation and in the redemption of his elect and his uh, renewal of all things in the last day. All of these things and his judgment of the wicked, his motive for all of these things ultimately is the manifestation of his glory. Um, the glory of his power, eternal power, wisdom, and goodness as uh, the divine state there. And this is a I think a fairly unique aspect in some ways of reform theology in particular as it's developed over the last 500 years, this emphasis on God's own glory being the motive for his actions in a fundamental way. And I think it's a really helpful emphasis in the reform tradition. Um, I think it's eminently scriptural um, and I think it helps us um, keep things in the right kind of perspective. Um, uh, Bavink, has this wonderful quote. He says, God alone is creator. Man is a created being. And for that reason alone, he cannot be the goal of creation. So we don't want to make humanity in some ultimate way, the goal or end of creation. 
Inasmuch as he has his origin in God, he can also have his destiny only in God, right? Only in the one who has given him life uh, from the beginning. Scripture accordingly takes another position and points to a higher goal, a higher goal for God's uh, motive in creation rather than just simply um, uh, mankind itself. He says that all nature, I'm sorry, scripture says that all nature is a revelation of God's attributes and a proclaimer of his praise. Uh, God created man after his image and for his glory. Um, he glorified himself in the Pharaoh of the Exodus by hardening his heart and bringing judgment upon him and in the man born blind by healing him from that blindness and made the wicked for the day of trouble. Christ came to glorify God and he bestows all the benefits of grace for his name's sake, redemption, forgiveness, sanctification, and so forth. God gives his glory to no other. The final goal is that all kingdoms will be subjected to him and all every creature will yield to him. As we'll see um, in our text this morning from Philippians 2, that all, every knee will bow um, in heaven on earth and say that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even on earth already he is given glory by all his people. Someday God alone will be great and receive glory from all his creatures. He is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Of him, through him, and to him are all things. On this basis, Christian theology almost unanimously, and so not just the Reformed tradition, but almost unanimously teaches that the glory of God is the final goal of all God's works. I think that's a wonderful summary of um, some of the main themes of the scriptures and particularly certainly in creation. I think we must say that the motive for which God made the world ultimately is for the manifestation of his glory because it glorified himself to do it. That's why um, he, it pleased him because he um, wanted to be, come to glorify himself. And what does that mean for a perfectly, you know, holy and glorious God uh, before creation to somehow manifest his glory in a new way, right? Um, I don't know if we can totally wrap our minds around that, but I do think that's an appropriate way to think about the motive for which God uh, made the world. Yes, sir. Yeah, Psalm 8, sure. So, and uh, Hebrews 2, yep. No, man is absolutely the center of, of how he's going to glorify himself. Because okay, humanity is the crown and jewel of creation, right? I think I yeah. So my, my point is simply, I mean, what Edwards says there is right in that earlier quote, um, God made the world so that his son would have a spouse, but why did he want his son to have a spouse? So that he would manifest his glory, right? He would, he would become uh, even more glorious in a sense. Um, it, would, it would add to his glorious nature. But the way that he glorifies himself is through creation and not just through creation, right? Because uh, when the fall happens, God doesn't walk away. God further glorifies himself um, in um, redemption and his son taking upon flesh, his son dying on the cross. And as we're going to talk about today, uh, the crucifixion, the, the son becoming obedient, humbling himself, becoming obedient, 
even to the point of death, even death on the cross, is the ultimate kind of glorification of God and the mystery of who God is. If you read the Gospel of John, it's unmistakable um, that the glorious moment for Jesus fundamentally is not his resurrection on the third day, it's his crucifixion, it's the cross where the Son glorifies the Father and, and reveals his own, uh, the Father's nature um, to humanity. Um, it's that moment, um, strikingly, in the Gospel of Mark, where for the first time, no one in the entire Gospel of Mark has called Jesus the Son of God apart from demons. No human being has done it until in, in Mark 16 or 15, uh, when after Jesus dies, the Roman centurion sees what happens. He says, surely this was the Son of God. And Mark, that doesn't mean historically that no one else ever said it. It means that, that Mark is making a theological point. That, that Jesus' divinity, his divine nature is revealed most fully in his death. Uh, which is, I mean, so this is how God glorifies himself. By creating um, the world, by creating humanity, and when humanity falls into sin, um, by pursuing um, the fallen human race, by his son taking on flesh and dying uh, for his bride, by giving himself that he might win that bride. This is how... God, so yes, humanity is the object, the goal, the, the end, but the ultimate end, right, is God's own glory. He's not doing that because he's a needy lover who needs to rescue. He's doing that because this is the way that he will glorify himself. Yeah, and it's, and it's reflected glory, right? It's not glory that comes from us. It's glory that is reflected back to God because of his initiative, his action. Eric? It does. No, that's right. It, it, you're right. It, this is, this emphasis is rooted in the Calvin in Calvin's theology. I mean, it's rooted in the scriptures, but in terms of history, um, the doctrine reaches a kind of new development within the writings of Calvin and the Institutes. And you're right. It does create a different sort of path in some ways theologically um, than a more Lutheran emphasis. Um, that's yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. And as I said, this is one of the reasons why I love the Reformed tradition that is, you know, historically um, developed uh, by, you know, no figure larger than John Calvin um, because of that emphasis on um, God's glory, his desire for his glory, the way that he glorifies himself um, is in creation and redemption. All right, so let me continue to move through here. So God... Just keep reading it. Please God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible. Uh, one of the things that we need to see here, I mean, in the beginning, right? That's just the first words of Genesis. Uh, one of the things that God created was time itself, time did not exist until God said, let there be light. 
um, God started time. He existed, he existed outside of time and he started time. There was a beginning. All of creation has a beginning. Although, fascinatingly, um, in the nature of God, creation will not have an end, right? Creation will extend and last forever um, because of the way in which God um, is redeeming it through his son, um, which is a crazy thing to think about, right? But, but unlike God has no beginning, creation does have beginning, um, but creation with God will also um, have no end. Uh, God created all things of nothing. We'll talk about that in a minute. And God created everything that exists outside of himself, both the visible creation and the invisible creation. And, um, uh, you know, this relates to um, the teaching of Paul in Colossians 1, um, that through the Son all things were made, right? Not only what's visible, but also what's invisible, uh, powers and rulers and authorities and dominions, all of those things were made um, by God, anything outside of himself. Uh, namely angels is what is being talked about there. Um, Lord, that, that category, and I mean, we don't obviously fully understand even what that category includes, but that category we talk about as angels. Um, Bavink uh, says, the teaching of creation out of nothing maintains that there is a distinction in essence between God and the world. The world has no independent existence and remains in God as its ongoing imminent cause. Is that word again, imminent. Um, the, the, the coherent, the, what we're inherent uh, cause um, that coheres, that is, that is inherent in uh, creation itself. Um, creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, Lethem says in his systematic theology, was a stark contrast to ideas prevalent in paganism. Um, he's talking about Greek philosophy, basically. Um, creation of nothing was a massively new idea um, where the universe was often held to be an emanation from a supreme being or matter to be pre-existent. In such cases, any supreme being would be in some sense dependent upon the world. As George S. Florvosky comments, Russian theologian, the idea of creation out of nothing was a strikingly Christian innovation in philosophy. The problem itself was alien and even unintelligible to the Greek mind. And fascinatingly, I think, it's interesting, in um, theories about the beginning and creation of things, um, so to speak, um, would in, in today's more secular discussions, um, you know, the Big Bang, right, is the idea that, but the question always becomes, well, where did whatever was at the heart of the Big Bang come from, right? I mean, you can't work back to a place where there's nothing and then there's something um, in terms of our ability to imagine and, and you know, postulate. Um, and, and this is where creation out of nothing is so fundamental because we believe um, that there was only God and that God made everything out of nothing that existed before, right? Um, he simply spoke and it was. Um, creation out of nothing. It's a, it is a fundamentally Christian idea. Um, it is a huge deal um, even today in terms of apologetics. Um, so uh, Van Dixhorn, um, wonderful book called Confessing the Faith, which is a commentary on the entire confession. Highly recommend it to you if you want a resource to, to give you line by line commentary on this document. He says, no less, this is, he's talking about the invisible creation, no less spectacular than prairie sunsets, tropical beaches, and thundering waterfalls are the things we cannot see. 
While men and women are marvelous in many ways, what are human beings and mighty nations when compared to the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities that we cannot see? What is man? He's imitating here, of course, Psalm 8. What is man that God is mindful of us when empires of angels serve him? And that is a fascinating thing that we don't have time to get into right now, but God created the invisible world as well. Um, um, angels are created beings. Um, they were created, the divines want us to understand, at the same time as everything else. Um, they were not pre-existence before, pre-existent rather, before um, the creation of the world. Um, they were created by God um, in his own time and way during those six days of creation. Um, Westminster Larger 17 um, speaks of angels and says God created all the angels spirits. We might you know, put a parenthesis as spirits, they're spirits, that's what they're trying to say, uh, fleshly or physical beings, immortal, holy, excelling in knowledge, mighty in power to execute his commandments, right, to serve him and to praise his name, yet subject to change. They were not like God, changeless, they were subject to change, and that is why, apparently, as we understand from the scriptures, um, some significant number of angels are fallen and are rebels against God. Um, uh, and are called demons um, because of that. <clears throat> the, the confession concludes its paragraph on creation with these two clauses, just to speak about briefly. In the space of six days, it says, and then, and all very good. In the space of six days, here the divines are maintaining fidelity to the biblical text in Genesis 1 and 2, which speak, of course, um, quite straightforwardly of six days um, in which God made the world. And there is little evidence historically that they considered any alternatives to these days being anything other than six 24-hour periods. Letham notes in his book, um, Westminster Assembly, um, he notes that all the assembly divines who wrote on the topic held to this view, that is six 24-hour days, so much so that some were even able to pinpoint exactly when creation took place. Um, I think the, the date was about um, 3950, 3,950 years before the birth of Christ. Um, um, and this, you know, that was based on a, an extrapolation of genealogies and those kinds of things. Um, for what it's worth, I agree with that. Um, I, I think, I am one of those who thinks that creation is 6,000, approximately 6,000 years old, and that God made the world in six literal 24-hour days. Um, I don't want to argue that point today. I'm just saying this is what I believe. I've preached on it. I've talked about it before. Why I think that. I think it's the most straightforward reading of the text. And from my hermeneutic, it is the most, it is the straightforward reading of the biblical text that should orient us to questions like this in a fundamental way, not um, scientific um, theories. Um, and so that's just simply what I would say. Um, and I'm not concerned in any fundamental way about how that appears to be at odds with um, quote-unquote scientific evidence about um, the history of matter. Um, we could talk about, you know, why I'm not concerned about that. Um, but fundamentally, I want to allow the scriptures to determine um, what I think about things like this. And I think from a purely hermeneutic perspective, it's very difficult to um, think that yom, in, which is the Hebrew word for day, uh, means anything other than a day. Um, in Genesis 1 and 2. So, um, again, that's, that's a 30-second argument for that position. Um, but adult, it is historically true that 
this was not a contested issue um, in the 17th century. They, this was obviously before Charles Darwin and before lots of things. Um, and so they were not asking questions about the length of creation in the ways that we are today. Certainly, it's very difficult to build a case that they intentionally meant by six days, six unmeasured epochs of redemptive time that God used to create the world. Now, that's not to say that the divines or me could be wrong. I'm just saying, I think that's pretty clearly what they meant, and that's what I mean personally. Um, I, but this is not something to divide the church over. It's important for you to know that there are pastors and elders in the PCA that disagree with me, that believe that creation took a very long time, but that God was also, you know, not in a theistic evolution way, and still believe in special creation of man and all of those things. Um, and they are minister, I mean, ministers in our presbytery that believe that. It's, it's not a crazy view. It's just not my view, uh, or I think the view of the writers of those standards. Um, and all very good. Um, this teaching, of course, is drawn from Genesis 1, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and then after the creation of mankind on day six, and God saw that it was very good, right? Um, and it's consistent with the whole of the scripture's teaching, right? Throughout the rest of the scriptures, this emphasis on the goodness of God's creation is repeated again and again. Think about Psalm 104. Think about all sorts of places in the Old Testament and New Testament. And this view of the goodness of creation should, view how, should impact how we view all the stuff, right? All the physical matter. We're not Gnostics. We don't believe that to be spiritual is to somehow get out of the body or get away from physical things or away from physical desires. Um, no, we believe that, that, that being made in flesh is a good thing in a fundamental way, in a lasting way. Um, that God meant to make human beings this way. In fact, he thinks it's such a good idea that his son united himself to human flesh, not just for a brief span of years so that he could deliver us from our bodies, but he is a man in a physical human body um, for the rest of eternity. That is the son of God. That's how good he thinks the stuff is that he made in his creation. This should impact how we view our bodies today, even as they are are um, fallen and are dying. Um, still, they are good. They are beloved by God. They're not something that we're trying to escape or get out of. It should impact our vocations, how we view our life in this world of created matter and what we're to do with that created matter as we organize it, as we take uh, words or things or buildings or pieces of wood or whatever it is that we do in our vocation. It has something to do with created stuff. And what we're called to do is to organize it and to make it glorious, and even as God organized his creation and made it glorious. Um, and it should view and impact what our expectation should be of God's ultimate end for his creation. If God calls his creation good, it means that he is not going to give up on it. Um, his son has taken on human flesh, after all, for eternity. So he is going to renew it. He is going to make it new. He is going to redeem it. Um, that the future of the human race is an embodied future in God, an embodied future in relationship to God, which is remarkable to think about. I'm going to close with this quote from Bavink because I love it. It's at the end of his four volumes of his dogmatics. He says, as he's talking about the eschaton, all that is true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, and commendable in the whole of creation in heaven and on earth, so not just visible, but invisible too, is gathered up in the future city of God, renewed, recreated, boosted to its highest glory. 
the substance of the city of God is present in this creation. It's already here. It's already here. Just as the caterpillar becomes a butterfly, as carbon is converted into a diamond, as the grain of wheat upon dying in the ground produces other grains of wheat, as all of nature revives in the spring and dresses up in celebrative clothing, as the believing community is formed out of Adam's fallen race, as the resurrection body is raised from the body that is dead and buried in the earth. He says, what is all this teaching us? All these pictures of created things dying and coming back to life again in more beautiful ways. It's teaching us about what God's intention for the world is. So too, by the recreating power of Christ, the new heaven and the new earth will one day emerge from the fire purged elements of this world. The fire um, imagery that we read about is not about the destruction of creation. It's about the purification of creation, even as Exodus and the exile were a furnace for the Israelites that they had to go through to be made pure and holy. So creation itself will be purified in the renewal of Christ on the last day. The new heaven and new earth will one day emerge from the fire purged elements of this world, radiant in enduring glory and forever set free from the bondage to decay. More glorious than this beautiful earth, right? We've only gotten started in terms of the glory of creation. That's what he's saying. More glorious than the earthly Jerusalem, more glorious even than paradise, right? Even than Eden itself in Genesis 1 will be the glory of the new Jerusalem whose architect and builder is God himself. The state of glory will be no mere restoration of the state of nature. We're not just trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. We want something better than that in the new creation. And it presents, I'm sorry, <clears throat> the state of glory be no mere restoration of the state of nature, but a reformation that thanks to the power of Christ, right, the one who has united himself for eternity to his creation, will transform all matter into form, all potency into actuality, and presents the entire creation before the face of God, brilliant and unfading splendor and blossoming in a springtime of eternal youth. That's a great description of the new heavens and the new earth and what God intends for his creation. All right, we're out of time. Let's stand and pray. Father, we're grateful for <clears throat> the good news and that you... Um, by your Son, in the work of the Spirit, created the world and gave it to us because of your love, because of your goodness, because of your life in yourself. We're thankful that you did this for your own glory and that we indeed are those who are swept up in this story. And Father, give us the faith and trust um, to be patient and to wait um, and to groan with creation as we long um, for the redemption of our bodies, indeed the redemption of all things that you've made. We trust that it will take place, Father, for you've sworn it um, in your Son, and he is committed to it, for he himself has, was, was made man. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.